you can redistribute wealth without giving people any more power. So uh, Freddie DeBoer is the author of The Cult of Smart. He has written for The New York Times, The LA Times, Harper's, The New Republic, and Jacobin, along with various other periodicals. Today, he also writes for himself through Substack to some considerable success, and I'm glad to get a chance to talk to him again, this time on generational politics, following up on an, an essay he wrote entitled, Gen X Was a Political Generation. Uh, Freddie, welcome back. Uh, we've talked before on the old podcast. Now you're on this one. I'm, I'm glad to have you on today. How have you been? Good. I've been pretty good. How are you, Doug? I'm doing okay. Um, you know, it, it's been a kind of a strange transition to the new space, but we're we're rolling. And uh, we just talked to Matt Christman a couple of weeks ago and talking to you, and uh, we're having good conversations. But yeah. I, I was really pleased with your writing on Generation X because, you know, I am an, a, an Xer. I'm mm -hmm. part of Generation X. And as I get older, I cling to that label more and more, I don't know, perversely, as it's forgotten. Um, so I was glad to just see the name of Generation X mentioned anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then um, also that you sort of defended uh, Gen Xers. You wrote, these Gen X students from the, in, in the 90s seemed like a different breed, thanks to the intensity of their commitments and their demands for immediate change. Their antagonism to half measures and incrementalism made them different. Those 18 to 22-ish year olds would come uh, on to become the mid to late 20-somethings who had played such a huge role in the battle uh, in Seattle, or the Battle of Seattle. And I liked that. Mm. But I, what I thought was most interesting about Generation X, uh, when you look back on Gen X, is that the assumption that went into formulating the ambition for Gen X was that uh, that basically because that generation had been exposed to so much media, <clears throat> we were all inoculated against propaganda, uh, be immune to the lies of corporate America and resist conforming. At least that was sort of the um, the way marketers thought about it. And some of the left, it, it, it seems to me that uh, maybe the problem is that of the way we frame uh, our, our own politics. In other words, we think that we're facing certain kinds of problems like the lies of corporate America when we, maybe we're not. Um, what do you think uh, uh, happened with the millennials? What, how was that? How were they framed to become part of the left, and and what mistakes were made at the beginning? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things I would say, sort of pre preliminarily to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the first thing that we we should always acknowledge is like generations are made up and make no sense. So, for example, my uh, I do not share a technically according to the demographers or whoever. I am a, an old one of the oldest millennials. I do not share a generation with my older brother, who is two years older than me, but I supposedly do share a generation with my oldest niece, who is 15 years younger than I am, um, mm. despite the fact that obviously my brother and I have had much more similar uh, experiences of the world. Mm. Um, and one thing that I will note um, before transitioning to the millennials with Gen X, I think Gen X is unusual in part because it is a unusually small generation. So... The boomers are vast. Um, the millennials are, um, in many ways, the echo of the boomers, right? In other words, because m 
most millennials are the children of boomers. And so they are, in fact, like, you know, they talk about the echo boom or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so millennials are a larger generation as well. And so Gen X is a sort of a, a small, uh, a, a unusually small generation sort of wedged in between. Um, so I, I think the thing is we have to sort of situate all of this in that um, <clears throat> a couple of things sort of changed everything unexpectedly which was 9-11 and the Iraq war and the anti-Iraq war movement. So mm -hmm. if, to look at me, you know, I grew up in a very lefty household. And so sort of transitioning into lefty activist politics in my teenage years was very normal. Um, but when I did it, the things that were big were anti-step sweatshop. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, there was uh, the uh, free Tibet movement. So, uh, the uh, movement against China's domination of Tibet and its treatment of the Dalai Lama, etc. Um, there had been a, a, a very big thing in left organizing had been uh, the anti-apartheid movement, which kind of dissolved because apartheid was dismantled. Um, uh, so you had this sort of these political entanglements for the left that were, and then there was just this sort of generalized anti-globalization like that, uh, uh, anti-WTO, anti-NAFTA, et cetera, um, World Bank stuff that was happening at the same time. And I think that those are um, reflections, those, those priorities are reflections of, um, you know, the 90s was sort of a, um, in some ways, a kind of a slumber for the whole country because there was a, a perceived sense that, okay, the Soviet Union's gone, uh, Capitalism is totally ascendant and has no has no major uh, competitors anymore. Uh, the economy is booming for most of that time. Uh, the uh, political parties have almost entirely merged on many aspects of domestic policy. So, for example, uh, when he runs against Bob Dole in 1996, Bill Clinton essentially runs on what would be a moderate Republicans platform. Right. Um, and so it just it had se it certainly seemed like. There was something to the idea of the end of history, and that um, meant that the the left was sort of fighting against these structures that were um, <clears throat> operating outside of a crisis framework. And then nine eleven happens, um, and a lot of things change when nine eleven happened. And one of the first things that is that all of a sudden there's new wars to oppose. Right? Um, you have a country that is in the grips of a just sort of um, all-encompassing nationalism and militarism, at least for a year or two. Um, you have the Bush uh, presidency, which again, like, you know, famously there's a, you know, uh, uh, the, the sense that Bush and Gore were the same guy in the 2000 election, right? In fact, there's a, a Rage Against the Machine uh, uh, video where, like, they keep morphing into each other, right? Because it's like they're the same. But now all of a sudden you have Bush is like, no, he's like, he's the big bad now, um, at least to people on the radical left. Um, and then you have the sort of organizing force of the um, uh, of the anti-Iraq war protests, which I was very deeply involved in for three-ish years of my life. Um, so what I think I think one of the things that happened is just that the the the, the issues that had been very salient to the uh, to the Gen X generation of, of protesters and of activists seemed less salient in a post 9-11 world where you know, it just it stopped being sort of cool to talk about um, sweatshops when you had the United States was now projecting force all over the world and had the Patriot Act and whatever. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so that's sort of, and of, of course, obviously, many, many, many Gen X activists, you know, joined the anti-Iraq war movement as, as we all as we all did. Um, but it definitely felt like there was a sudden generational shift sort of in terms of like what the, the, the focus was. Now, the yeah. other thing with millennials is that millennials, again, like I'm one of the eldest, oldest millennials, I'm 40, but mm -hmm. um, we grew up into uh, the, the housing crisis and the Great Recession. And so um, where Gen X's sort of mid 90s sort of thing was the malaise of capitalism and like the um, the, the sense that the system Everything was just so set in stone, and the system was just all going to continue perpetuating itself forever. Um, in contrast to that, there was a sense that now all of a sudden the system is totally broken. Even Wall Street people are saying, "Wow, something's really fucked up here." And you know, I graduated. You know, I, I you know, people ask, "Well, why would you go to, to grad school?" And I always tell them, um, "I was on the job market in 2009 with nothing but a bachelor's degree in English, right?" Like, mm -hmm. Like there was a widespread experience of mass joblessness. Um, and so I think that in much the same way that the Gen X uh, uh, generation is kind of small, it's moment and sort of defining what activist priorities was, was short. It was short circuited by 9-11 and then the attendant uh, ills of the financial crisis so that um, Millennials seem to be more indicative of um, where activism was compared to Gen Xers. And of course, you know, younger people are always more interesting than older people. And at that point, you know, the Gen Xers were reaching their 40s. And so, uh, you know, everyone wanted to talk about these radicalized young millennials. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, as I say in that piece, um, people on the left have been saying the youth will save us for hundreds of years, and it never happens. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I I I pretty much agree with your timeline. I just I want to as somebody who's I'm 51, and you know so I I and I've been on the left for a long time. I want to add a couple of thoughts to it or some nuances to it. One of the things is that I think what your story leaves out is uh, a, a part of the left which was anti-capitalist and conceived of itself as revolutionary mm. all along, right? So like in the Pacific Northwest, you know, the, you had Anarchy Magazine and you had uh, the people who maybe were to the right of that in some ways who were reading Z Magazine, but thinking of themselves as revolutionary. And all along, there was a feeling that, yeah, we have to overturn society fundamentally. There's some needs to be some sort of revolution. This is always like in the background. Uh, even when you were like I worked at an, uh, a public interest research group. And the, the rank and file people would say, well, a fun, somehow we have to have a fundamental revolutionary change, whether that was, well, I'll do drugs and our consciousness will change or, you know, we'll take the state. It depended on the person, but there was a sense that there needed to be a revolutionary alteration. Um, so, and that is, I think, what the young people are called upon to do. We we shouldn't make a mistake here that the, what what we're asking the young people to do is not strengthen and and uh, the Democratic Party and make it more progressive. We're not asking for the right reforms to be passed by young people's voting the right way or hitting the streets at the right time. We're asking for them to somehow transform society. Um, so given that this, that's the case, you have to like put all these little bits into the context of all of them were supposed to be the tip of the spear 
to some sort of revolutionary change, especially the anti-capitalist, uh, uh, anti, anti-globalization movement was uh, conceived of itself that way. And certainly the radical aspects of it did. Um, so the other thing is after 9-11, there were, as- there were people who were, we could call them Gen X activists or the Gen X left. <clears throat> they were probably either uh, young boomers or, or Gen Xers um, who would say things like, yeah, this was a conspiracy to stop us. Mm-hmm. You know, it was an inside job. And the aim was to stop the anti-WTO movement. The aim was to mm-hmm. put the lid on, on us. Um, of course, I think that was completely delusional. But nonetheless, that, that was floated in the background. And I, I did, I moved from being sort of on the sidelines with the anti-WTO movement, writing about it sometimes, looking at it online, to organizing against the invasion of Afghanistan and then the war in Iraq, um, put, you know, putting protests in the street anyway. And uh, it was, I kept wanting to bring people over from the anti-WTO side of the left into the anti-war left uh, and vice versa in order to make it kind of to make it that tip of the spear, you know? Right. Um, and of course it uh, didn't get anywhere close to even convincing a few f- friends to, to be more involved with the, what they called the liberal pacifists. Uh, right. Um, but what I guess um, I, I, I'm wondering is why do you think it is that the youth, whether they're Gen Xers or millennials are being asked to do such a large thing and are, is the left overall, really aware that that's what we're asking the young people to do. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, I just, I, I think you should never underestimate like the degree to which people have quietly given up. I mean, I think that one of the things that I think is now, this is not just true of lefties. I think it's true of people from all manner of political backgrounds, but certainly um, I think a lot of people um, just sort of feel like um, we've exhausted all these potential avenues for real change and we've gotten nowhere. I mean, you know, I think in part because I was raised in a communist household. And so I'm just used to losing all the time. Mm-hmm. I did not take the two Bernie candidacy losses as hard as some people did. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people really believed in it, which is good because you, you need to believe in it for it to be possible. But um, I think for a lot of people, there's a real sense of fatalism right now that um, like uh, Bernie was right. He was a right candidate. Um, some combination of dirty tricks and um, a uh, uh, diluted democratic base defeated him. Um, there doesn't appear to be a real clear organizing principle right now for what we want. I mean, if, mm-hmm. you, you, know, if you sort of ask or sort of say, like, what, what is the, right, right now the most immediate demand for the American socialist left? What's the first thing we would want? I suppose you would say Medicare for all, which is a very good organizing principle, but um, that doesn't seem to be any closer than anything else. So I just think a lot of people sort of have this sense of just like, you know, we can't, you know, business as usual has been exhausted, but they also recognize that it's not like we're going to have a, you know, a violent revolution anytime soon. And so one of the things that the youth always do is they just offer this potential for, for perpetual hope, right? Because there's always new young people being born. Um, there's always a sense that um, there is, uh, okay, maybe this cohort didn't do it, but maybe the next one will. Um, Mm. I would sort of tell people, look, like it could be a lot worse. You know, I, I, I do think that 
both this country and the Democratic Party have moved materially to the left in my own lifetime. Um, the agenda that Bill Clinton, you know, ran on and and, and ruled over in the, in the say the ninety six election is just not at all the same agenda or talking points that Joe Biden used to win the presidency in twenty twenty. Um, of course, it's we're very very far from where I want to be. But um, what you can talk about now is just vastly to the left of where it was, even when I, I first started writing for public consumption in, in 2008. And like the farthest left mainstream figures were guys like Michael Kinsley, right? Like, the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the ground really has shifted. The, the window has moved. Um, I'm terribly disappointed that the Biden child tax credit um, was so short that it never got extended. But that's the kind of policy that we absolutely should be all about. And it actually existed for a little time and it brought a lot of families out of poverty. Um, you, you've got to, I, I think there are green shoots out there that it don't re require us to imagine some mythical generation coming in and sort of uh, saving our, our bacon. I also think that I don't, you know, Matt Brunig is someone who um, has pointed out in the past that, there's not a ton of evidence that people really move very far to the right as they age. Mm -hmm. um, like it's, if you know, there's a, there's an old school sort of thought that like, okay, everybody becomes more conservative as they age. It doesn't really, it's not really born out in a lot of numbers, but I think what does happen is that like simply by virtue of occupying certain positions, like as homeowner or job haver, right. People who are, or parent, people who are older, um, create a kind of status quo bias that makes them more functionally conservative, even if they're not ideologically more conservative. Um, but um, we don't need to have people come in and sweep in and have a you know rousing youth revolution. What we need is to um, consolidate around a few really important policies that we think can be meaningfully wrung out of the Democratic Party, um, mm -hmm. try to figure out what our orientation towards that party should be. I mean, you know, at this stage, post Bernie, Bernie's 81 years old, right? Like he's, that's, he's that's not going to be perfect. Yeah, that's over. Um, but uh, again, there's some, in Congress, there's some, there's some leftier Dems than any Dem that was in Congress in the mid nineties. Um, so like we have a lot of figuring out to do and I'm a pessimistic person by, by nature. But I think that um, the obsession with generational politics comes from a kind of fatalism that we don't need to have right now. Well, let me ask you um, about this idea about how things have, you, you said think we've moved to the left in many ways. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and what, what I recall is that, cause get to remember like in 92, I was 21. Right. So like I was, I'd been only been voting a little bit, but um, Clinton was a very conservative mm -hmm. Democrat. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I recall like, Noam Chomsky saying things like, you know, by by the standards of the 70s, you know, Nixon would be a more progressive left wing uh, Democrat than Bill Clinton. Um, and thinking this over, I think the difference between Nixon and Clinton isn't really their political ideology or their party, but their moment. Mm. Nixon came in during Fordism. You know, towards the end of Fordism, Nixon came in when the assumptions 
were of what was politically feasible were very different and the the problems were only beginning to be perceived maybe to mm -hmm. the need for a change clinton came in after reaganism and after neoliberalism had taken hold uh, globally and so and his job was and what he did anyway was ratify it make it the policy and the, the perspective of both parties um now after the 2008 crisis we seem to be in a moment where that neoliberal approach to managing capitalism isn't working um and we've known that since 2008 even alan greenspan kind of announced the end of neoliberalism um and uh so i worry that when we look to the democratic party and say let's move to the left we might not be uh any better off or we may be just as mistaken as some people are when they looked to Trump and said he's partly on the left. Remember Glenn Greenwald mm -hmm. called Tucker Carlson a socialist? Right, yeah. Right? Well, why did he do that? He did that because Tucker Carlson is embracing some redistributive politics and policies. And so the Democrats may, today may be doing that as, a, as overall, not just in the United States, but around the world, uh, the, the ruling class embraces a new kind of nationalism uh, a new orientation that would include more redistribution maybe especially in the developed world so i worry about whether or not we're really seeing a move to the left or we're just seeing a change in the problems of capitalism in the way that's managed yeah i mean i don't think i, I i'm pretty sure that i could never most of us could never sort of see where we are in our historical moment while we're in it. It's just, it, there's too many moving parts. Um, mm -hmm. And you might be right about that. I will, I will point a couple of things out. Like one thing is that um, just look at the Republicans. Okay. 10 mm -hmm. years ago, um, it really seemed like Paul Ryan would be able to dramatically cut social security and Medicare. Mm -hmm. And not only did he fail, um, even in the, in the Republican uh, presidential primary in 2016. So only like four or five years after that was happening, um, people didn't even talk about it, right? Like Republicans don't want to talk about cutting Medicare or, or Social Security because they realize it's just a losing issue for them. Trump mm -hmm. made some hay by by saying, "Like I'm the guy who won't cut your your Medicare or Social Security." Does that mean that it gets a left wing move? No. I mean, partly, right? Um, this is just the Re Republican Party has become utterly hollowed out of policy. And it's now just purely the politics of cultural resentment and reaction, right? Like mm -hmm. that you win, you win elections as a Republican by being the crudest expressor of, you know, just the most animalistic culture politics. So it's not like this is like a good development. On the other hand, um, we're simply sort of talking about a different level of government involvement in the economy now without even necessarily recognizing it as left wing. So for example, to give the devil its due, um, what Congress and the central bank did in pulling us out of the COVID recession in 2020 has been remarkable. And they did it with some fairly left-wing sort of policies, meaning spending a shit ton of money and having a lot of loose cash out there, right? In other mm -hmm. words, the response to the Great Recession was this sort of austerity politics, again, sort of dictated by guys like Paul Ryan, um, which um, we didn't stimulate the economy su sufficiently to get us out of the recession, and it dragged on and on and on. And you can look at a graph of the amount of time it took for us on the labor market to recover from the Great Recession, and it took a decade. Whereas 
we're back to pre-2020 recessionary levels um, in the labor market right now because we spent trillions of dollars to get there and we had a lot of loose cash. And the whoever and this is, I mean, the upside of Republicans going nuts is that like, you know, there just isn't the sort of um, fiscal hawk people uh, dictating the conversation in the way that they did 10 and 15 years ago, right? So, I mean, that that, that to me is is uh, a valid a difference. Um, look, we're all, we're all sort of playing in the pot of the possible. Um, I will say this, um, you know, Biden's domestic agenda, which he has largely not been able to pass, so he's gotten some things through. Biden's domestic agenda, um, to me, is just a better, much, much better agenda than uh, Bill Clinton's and largely a better agenda than Barack Obama's. And so, like, mm-hmm. in that sense... Can you give me uh, a couple of examples? Sure. Or, I mean, uh, again, like, the CTC, like, the child tax credit, just cutting families with children checks, right, mm-hmm. is that is essentially what Bill Clinton cut with welfare reform, right? In other words, who got it and its means testing and stuff was different. But, you know, Clinton ran on and passed a uh, dramatic cut to quote unquote welfare, right? Mm-hmm. Which, which it deepened uh, extreme poverty in this country tremendously. Uh, and is, you know, one of the reasons why I have a deep hatred for that man. So what's, Brock, what's the difference between the earned income credit and the child tax credit? Is it the difference that you don't have to be working yeah, to so get the child tax credit? So, yeah, so it is, it is both looser in terms of, um, uh, it's like it's it's with work requirements, um, more universal in terms of more people uh, get it. Um, and but it's also uh, it's not just a credit that you get on your taxes. I mean, people are actually receiving cash in advance. Right. I can tell you for years I had lots of kids and very little income. I got earned the earned income credit. Yeah. And it was like getting free money because right. well, not, not, yeah. not only did you did I not have to pay the taxes, but I received money from the government right. because yeah. and not more than I had paid in taxes. So, I mean, you can just, you can think of the CTC. I mean, again, like Matt Bruning is a guy who can tell you all about this better than I can, Mm -hmm. but like you can think of the CTC as like, just like a a amped up more powerful version of, uh, of the, um, of the tax credit. And again, like, you know, people can debate whether we should be, you know, paying people to have families or not, but it was an example of just like a directly redistributive program. That's not coming with a ton of, of, um, uh, of provisos and qualifications that does it's not aggressively means tested, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, he, uh, just in general, um, Obama spent his whole presidency trying to reassure everyone about his reasonableness, uh, mm-hmm. in regard to running deficits, um, and, you know, balancing the books. Uh, Obama was, um, it's insane to me once to think back to it, the amount of time that he spent trying to prove to congressional Republicans that he was like, like a reasonable guy when that appeared to get him nothing, right? Like, I mean, all the time that he spent trying to appear reasonable didn't make it any bit easier for him to pass anything. But, Mm. you know, Biden has spoken um, uh, approvingly of a public option. Uh, A public option is not single payer. It's not what I want. Um, but I would certainly be happy if there was a public option. I would take that option myself personally mm-hmm. um, and from, from the federal level for, for health care. I just think that if you look at like in a purely redistributive level, um, Biden's agenda is an agenda that was passed in the shadow of the Bernie Sanders candidacies and that 
it was demonstrated to the Democrats that a much more aggressively redistributive uh, domestic policy can be a political winner. And I think everybody in 2020 was running to the right, excuse me, to the left, to try to sort of shore off that sort of Bernie threat, um, ultimately successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll take it. You know, I don't I don't think Joe Biden is a radical at all in any sense, but um, uh, he is. Um, and of course, you know, we're all subject to the whims of the, of the dictators in West Virginia uh, and Arizona in um, cinema and mansion. But um, I just I think that there's things to like. Does that mean that the country is going the way that I want it to know? And again, I'm I'm constitutionally a pessimist and I write pessimistic things all the time. However, mm-hmm. I just think that, um, you know, you just you cannot allow yourself to fall into a romanticism about, you know, how shit is fucked up and bullshit. I mean, I think one of the things that I would say, one of the the critiques I would have of the Occupy movement is that um, there was too much of a belief that simply simple like anger and the expression of anger and the, the constant sort of, you know, everything is wrong and, you know, the whole system is broken that wasn't sort of focused like a laser onto like specific issues and topics and talking points. Um, And I think that that was one of the reasons why Occupy ultimately fizzled out because just like just being passionate about politics doesn't really get you anything. And to go back to the beginning of the the conversation, like the anti-global people, you know, Mm -hmm. um, of which I had many comrades at the time, you know, um, you know, they were half right in the sense that, um, the globalization effort was Reaganism and Thatcherism, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, labor was correct prior to NAFTA to say that these things were going to destroy the American uh, working class, which, which they did, that they were going to ruin life for people without college degrees, which it did. Um, but it was never quite clear what the anti-globalization people were for, rather than simply being against particular structures of the globalization uh, system. And you have to have an alternative. They were for the destruction of civilization and the, the and Emperor John Cezanne. Um, no, uh, <laughs> that's just in the Pacific Northwest in one cafe. But nonetheless, uh, well, okay. Going back to your um, uh, uh, your 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 points about Biden, um, <laughs> let's see if I can formulate this in a way that that's not going to just get us into a back and forth on oh he's really bad, no he's better than you think kind of uh, <clears throat> stupidity. Um, I, okay, the question I think is what do, what is the left aiming at? Mm-hmm. Are we aiming at developing working class power? Which, like when Matt Crispin was on recently, that's what he said. The whole point of the Bernie Sanders campaign was was not even necessarily to get Medicare for all passed, although that was he, everyone would like that, right? But mm-hmm. but it was to develop a movement. In a backwards way, top down, because it seemed like the only option for future political activity uh, to come from the working class. In other words, to give the working class a way in to shaping society, a way in to finding their feet and 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 finding their voices, so that they could first perhaps challenge the current system. I mean, that is, that's the mm-hmm. aim. What, and what, and how that challenge is going to be worked out. I mean, just what revolution means, again, changes based on who you talk to. If you talk to a trot, it's one thing. If you talk to an anarchist, it's another. But um, it, what, what people are hoping for is some sort of fundamental shift 
of uh, power over productive and and reproductive and cultural life to everyday working people, right? And I worry that you know simple even some gains in the in the on the level of redistribution may not be enough or even shouldn't maybe even be counted as a win. I know that sounds sort of cold hearted, but I just remember like the Frankfurt school philosophers in the fifties and sixties looking at opulence and rising equality and, and uh, you know, property ownership and, and, you know, fat bellies and saying we're losing human freedom. We're losing, uh, you know, the future of, of, a, of a transformation. Um, and so I think we're, for, we're not in that moment. We're not uh, really going to go. Re- we're not returning to the 50s and mm-hmm. even economically. But we may be our, our horizon may be too low. Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, I should be clear. Like I, you know, I have derided what Biden is attempting and again, can't even really do because of uh, his own party, senators in his own party. But I have derided that in the past as pity charity liberalism, right? And the thing is, like, if it's just redistribution, if we're just if we just get the, the state to give us a little bit more of the, uh, you know, a few more crumbs from the pie, um, then they can take it back anytime they want, because, you know, that doesn't you can redistribute wealth without giving people any more power. Um, I think part of the reason why people fixate on the labor movement as like a potential source for left wing um, renewal is because, you know, a union doesn't just get you more, more uh, higher wages. Uh, a union is the site of actual power that can, you know, use their label power to disable uh, uh, shipping lanes and to shut down supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, I want to be clear about that. Um you know, I, of course, I agree with Matt Grisman in the sense that um, a working class movement is what we need, but it's not entirely clear what that is, right? And it's also not clear sort of like what the leather of power it pushes with. I mean, look, look, I cannot, I cannot disagree with those who say like, look, um, the Democratic Party is a capitalist party. Uh, they exist to sort of shore off genuine left-wing movements that could legitimately threaten the uh, dominance of capital. That's the role that they've played for over a hundred years. And there's no reason for us to think that we uh, can be the ones who can change that moving forward. Um, And I get it. Um, The question, the problem is, is for one thing, even for a lot of people who I would consider political in the sense that, that they have, you know, they're, they're animated by particular, um, political passions and they have a lot of ideas for a lot of people, even people like that politics is something they do once every four years in a voting booth. Right. Mm. And it can be really difficult for people to think of themselves as political actors outside of the degree to which they're voting for a party. Mm. Um, I think that to me, the thing that makes the most sense is something like what DSA is attempting. I'm not a DSA member, but, um, it seems to me that what they're, the more sensible ones uh, in that organization are doing is um, in places like where I live in Brooklyn and, and elsewhere in New York, they're electing city council members and assembly people. And they're trying to pull, you know, local uh, races where they can further to the left, mm. um, typically under the banner of the Democratic Party. 
mm-hmm. uh, someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And so just sort of building up a base of left-wing politicians within the Democratic Party that maybe someday with a lot of hard work could pull the party sufficiently to the left, which a Bernie could win, could rise above the machinations of the party uh, machinery um, and do something that way. Or you get these people together and then maybe eventually you build up a critical mass sufficiently to start a third party that has an actual shot of winning something. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we talk about like, okay, working class power, um, look, I'm an activist even now at 40. I, I do housing activism in the city and I, and I go and I canvas and I leaflet and I uh, answer phones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I believe in it. But like, you know, there's got to be a real concrete sense of, OK, what we're doing now is this specific thing in the world, like an actual action. And the reason we're doing it is for this political purpose. And I think that the problem with a lot of talk about, you know, rebuilding a working class party is, um, you know, which is it, it always depends on, okay, who specifically are we trying to convince to do what? You, know, you really have to bird dog it and get down to those specifics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, I wanted to ask you some, about something altogether different that was in your piece on Gen X, which is um, you pointed out that the question of, I, I don't know, censorship or calling uh, the call out culture or, or wokeism was really around back in the 90s as well. And I actually completely agree with you. I recall when I was working for that PERG I mentioned before that it went through the organization that we were all to uh, object or help to ban a book called American Psycho, Mm. uh, which was, you know, it's been made into a movie and it's a very famous book by Brett Edston Willis, I think is the author. And, and, um, it, but I was told, you know, it was a manual for how to murder women and things like that, um, which I, turns out it isn't. It's a novel. Um, but it was debated at the time, even within the organization, like, well, are we for free speech, even no matter what this book is? Or, you know, what's in our interest here? Are we are we can we fight misogyny uh, while holding on to civil liberties? Um, why do you think this has been such a problem for the left? I mean, I guess it's been a problem on the right as well. But why is this such a problem in left-wing politics? And why does it keep spinning around and around and not yeah. get resolved? I mean, I think a lot of it has to, has to do with the fact that um, the left doesn't control much, right? If we think about the left, like left of liberal left, if we think about, you know, um, uh, socialists and anarchists and et cetera, et cetera, um, we don't have a lot of influence in a lot of places, but the places where we do have the most influence tend to be places that are discursive in nature. So um, academia, um, much than not, not all, but much of media has people who are friendlier to the far left than they are in other places, um, nonprofits, uh, nonprofits and foundations that do charitable work. Um, you know, the kind of, you know, the arts, you know, you know, both like artists themselves, but also the whole the museums and galleries, et cetera. These are the places where the left tends to have enjoyed the most influence. And um, I think that so often the urge is to censor or to control discourse in one way or the other, because discourse is all that we can control. Right. In other words, that like um, there's a sense of like we just don't have uh power in so many domains. And so in this domain um, where, you know, the the free spread of ideas, we enjoy uh, a certain amount of power that we're going to take advantage of because, but you know, God damn it, we're going to have power somewhere. 
Um, yeah. And so it, I think that is, is part of it. And the other thing is, um, like I said, like, look, uh, I grew up on Wesleyan University. Um, I have complicated and I had complicated feelings towards the student activists there. Um, a lot of them were really good, passionate people who cared about a lot of stuff. But they also were going to a, a school that even in, uh, you know, 1990 costs like $50,000 a year to go to. Right. Mm. Um, so it was definitely a privileged class of students. And so I think that a lot of them were people who grew up in milieus in which they weren't used to being offended, to being frightened, to being um, disagreed with. That These were kids who came from a certain layer of privilege where um, they were just sort of used to everything sort of just unfolding itself to their advantage. And so being cast into spaces where suddenly there's ideas that seem very scary is very threatening to them. And I think that if you look at a lot of these, you know, censorious sort of movements, uh, left movements, I think ultimately you'll find that a lot of it comes from people who have enjoyed a lot of material advantage and they're not used to having to feel challenged in that way. Yeah. Um, I, would you say also that there was a, that, that the act, the turn to the academy overall help was part of the problem? I mean, I think mm -hmm. you mentioned it, but, but it seems to me that ideas and theories came out of the academy in the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. which which argued that that discourse and language was really the stuff that our politics were made of and that 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 was the space where battles were being done i mean deconstruction and post-structuralism are all kind of anti-marxist ideologies and they, they tend to be if it uh, to emphasize the power of, of language and, and culture over material conditions. And do you think that part of the problem just goes back to that point where the left abandoned um, uh, kind of a materialistic theory for their, for their politics? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is like you can think of how self-serving that was for those professors, right? Right, like <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a philosopher of language, Turns out language is the most powerful thing there is, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, like I can't, I'm not in a position to judge because my father was a professor and his father was a professor and, you know, I have a PhD and we're just, a, you know, a long string of like lefties who sort of found a home in the academy. So I don't want to sound too harsh, but um, yeah, I think a lot of people sort of hid out in the academy. A lot of Marxists sort of said, okay, this is the place where we could be safe for a variety of reasons. And um sort of be removed from everything. Um, but now, I mean, it's so funny because we have all this talk about whether the humanities are worthwhile, if they should be taught, if, you know, if they, um, if, if it makes sense to get humanities degrees in, in the 21st century. But meanwhile, these ideas are coming out of, you know, the really obscure ideas like critical race theory or uh, deconstruction or whatever um, are coming out of, these kind of obscure, small, elite academic spaces, and they're completely colonizing our uh, our educated class. I mean, it's it's remarkable how effective they've been. So maybe you know, the yeah. communities aren't so powerless after all. You know, you, you know. Um, remember when they when they decided that some Dr. Seuss books should be taken? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it was his own publisher decided to get rid of some Dr. Seuss books, but there were uh, there were reasons behind that decision. What if you look into it? it started in academic journals these critiques of dr seuss and uh and the uh 
imperialism in Dr. Seuss and the racism in Dr. Seuss were, was examined in a kind of navel-gazing way in some critical theory journals and feminist journals and what have you, you know, maybe a decade earlier. And then... And then it's, it, pretty, it's pretty depressing when you think about, like, the arc from which the left goes from the Pullman strikes to... Uh, to <laughs> Dr. Seuss or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, th th you can debate the actual images and question all you want. Um, I read to think that I saw it on Mulberry street to my own kids. And mm -hmm. I, I never thought of it as a racist book, mm -hmm. but, um, but whatever you think of Dr. Seuss and, or those particular books, there's just no question that the, the realm of, the humanities and 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 particularly the academic, uh, you know, cultural studies realm had a political uh, import, mm -hmm. and if only ideologically. I mean, it's like no one really. It doesn't really matter whether or not you can buy the things that I saw it on Mulberry Street, mm -hmm. uh, at your local bookstore or not. You know, it, it, that's not going to change whether or not you have a good wage or or have a workers' party even. Um, I mean, if you if your if your kid can be made racist because of what they see in a Dr. Seuss book, you got bigger problems than Dr. Seuss. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the the thing for me is that like, um, I think the remarkable thing about the about studies departments, critical studies, you know, gender studies, whatever, is that their ideas spread to other disciplines and become unavoidable in those disciplines. So, for example, Sabine, uh, I think her name is Sabine Hofstetler. She's a theoretical physicist. Um, who works for some institute of advanced whatever somewhere. Um, and she was tweeting about how, um, she, you know, she writes things about like cosmology, but uh, a paper she submitted, they, they, the requirement was that you had to talk about how this, your research could affect people from racial and gender minorities. And it's just like, I, you know, I, I do physics, right? Like, but that, that kind of a, that kind of a demand of, you know, you have to talk about the disparate impact of your research started very much in like these small handful of things and then went sort of sociology and then to anthropology and then they go to legal studies and then they go to business, et cetera. And these, these ideas just metastasize and it's really remarkable how quickly they spread. Jesse Single has a book out about uh, kind of pseudo sociology and how it influences, I forget the name of it, but uh, it's about like, you know, how the self-esteem movement took over education and, and before that, I mean, I guess mindfulness was a big deal for a while. And it seems like this stuff is also it's not different from that. It's not it's just because it's, uh, you know, it's got a different valence or something uh, and seems a little bit more of the left than a self-esteem mm. uh, course might. It, nonetheless there's just sort of a culture a culture industry that influences everything and it mm -hmm. actually i guess the academy is is part of that industry it's mm -hmm. the subsidized you know uh institution of of cultural production mm -hmm. um so um listen speaking of institutionalizing cultural production Let's talk about the online left and what's what's left of, of the left after Bernie. And I know you're less pessimistic than I am about the prospects of the actual political left. Um, but it does seem to me that, uh, well, listen, this is the part for the patrons. So I'm going to not actually going to stop anything, but I'm going to announce like if you want to watch any more and hear this part of the conversation, go over to the Patreon. 